Greetings, church and friends of the church. It is um, the end of April 2021, more than a year into this pandemic wilderness, um, with the wilderness being that metaphorical image of this place that we're in now, uh, the place of being thrust out from and disconnected from what we used to know as normal before this season, and uh, this place in which we're kind of wandering together toward a new normal that, that, that isn't yet realized, that, uh, that hasn't yet come to be. So in this wilderness season and in this series, we sought to better understand uh, ourselves so that we might emerge from the wilderness season into a new normal that is better and more just than the old normal that we left behind. So to do that, we have sought to better understand the physical tendencies that have evolved within us all that are a part of each and every human being in this world. These uh, physical tendencies and self-defense mechanisms that prime us to fight, to assume negatively about others, and to tribalize with those like us. Um, these, these drives that are just inherent within us. Um, and we sought to better understand how these inherent tendencies instinctively and organically take shape collectively in our culture as destructive isms, um, social forces and movements that counterproductively destroy that sense of belonging and safety and peace that everybody craves. And so um, in this series, we've also named the need for a spirituality, whether that is grounded in a particular religious practice or not, um, a spirituality that counteracts these physical forces, uh, a different voice within us that speaks a different vision of who we are and what we're capable of and what we ought to do um, so that we don't just live by these voices of these physical tendencies. Um, and we've started to consider some different spiritual practices that, that all of us can nurture um, so that that non-physical voice within us can help us to move beyond these physical, animalistic, counterproductive, destructive tendencies. Um, a few episodes ago, we introduced the ninth spiritual practice of simplifying, which we are considering slowly across a number of different episodes. Um, simplifying is not about objects or tasks or appointments. Um, we don't get it by going to the container store um, or dropping off a car full of things at the Goodwill. Um, but simplifying is about intentionally adjusting our expectations in life of, of God, of ourselves, of other people, because the goal of simplifying is not actually about feeling more efficient, but about feeling less worry and fear. That, that desire deep within us craving Simplicity is not about efficiency. It's about wanting to feel and experience less worry and fear. And we have to uh, be aware that that worry and fear is birthed out of the expectations that we naturally and organically form about ourselves, about others, about God, about life in general. We've evolved to be this way, to be prone to worry. Brain science tells us that when we physiologically experience these kinds of worries, especially in our childhood, our brain is very good at creating um, 
expectations of God, of self, and others that look like pathways in the brain. We experience them as unchallenged expectations. And those expectations help to expedite future worry and response, fearful response to that same thing. So it gets easier and easier throughout our lives to make assumptions about others and assumptions about life that are negative and fearful. So in order to simplify, to experience less worry and fear, we have to retrain our brains by creating new expectations of God and others. So in uh, the previous episodes on simplicity, um, we considered how to intentionally simplify our possessions by retraining our brains to move beyond uh, the worries that were planted within us um, by the forces of materialism and how to intentionally simplify um, our schedules by retraining our brains to move beyond the worries and expectations planted within us by the forces of individualism. So um, in this episode, we consider how to intentionally simplify our beliefs by retraining our brains to move beyond the worries and expectations of God and others planted within us by the forces of dogmatism. So um, fair warning, this is probably my longest offering yet, but this is, gosh, this is the reflection on religion and the church that I have always wanted to put out there. So buckle up. Um, so if you watched or listened to the previous episode, I don't know how many months ago, I've lost track at this point, on what dogmatism is and how it is a force within our collective uh, life together, you'll remember that dogmatism is an adherence to a set of principles that are named by a human tribal authority as being incontrovertibly true. We uh, entrust our, our lives, the shaping of our lives to human authorities, religious, political, familial, celebrity, etc. And these humans um, tend to demand our adherence to sets of human created principles that they hold to be incontrovertibly true. And they say we aren't a real fill in the blank um, unless we believe what they're telling us that we must. And if we don't adhere and don't believe everything they say to be true, if these principles don't shape the attitudes and actions of our lives, then we're, we're understood to be and labeled a heretic, an enemy, an outsider. We're not a real Christian. We're not a real American. We're not a real uh, Republican or Democrat. We're not a real whatever if we don't get on board with believing everything that they say we have to believe. So this is a huge dynamic in the history of human religion. Um, and it's been a force of dogma and not about the core understandings of the different religious traditions. So if I was a child, if as a child, or even in my younger days as a younger adult, um, if a human voice to whom we assign authority, uh, a religious leader, whether that's a leader in an actual institution to which your family belonged, or a parent or grandparent speaking about religious beliefs, or someone on television talking about it, or maybe a religious friend at school, which I was to many of my friends, if ever, as a child or a young adult, this person said something that caused you to worry and to fear, 
whether that's a fear for the eternal well-being of your soul or, uh, or the well-being of your body because of the risk supposedly posed to you by having wrong beliefs that either condemn you to some eternal torment or bring about some sort of divine punishment in, in the here and now, whether the proverbial lightning bolt of smite or some negative or unfortunate circumstance that can be misunderstood to be something that God, God kind of miraculously caused on purpose to punish you. If just once those fears and worries were triggered within you by dogmatism, seeking to manipulate your beliefs and loyalties, it only gets easier for our brains then to return to those same places of fear time and time again and less challenged. And if left unchallenged, the, the fear and the worry and the kind of religion that that nurtures compounds. Our religious beliefs get more and more complicated, more and more fear-based, more and more layers of what we're told we must believe is incontrovertibly true or piled on top of the core of our beliefs until it's barely recognizable, if at all, anymore. But if we're willing to use some of the spiritual practices we've considered in this series, the, the meditation to calm these physical alarms and tendencies, uh, the prayer exchange, the honesty, the accountability cycle, we, we can see how this has become true and is true, not just, not just for people of other religions, uh, or other denominations within our religion, but for, for our own religious lives as well. So this is not exclusive to the Judeo-Christian story, as maybe we've become aware of the dogmatic hypocrisy, if not dogmatic radicalization, that exists within all the religious traditions, where human dogmatic structures steal those traditions away from the golden rule core in their heart. But for this episode, um, we explore this dynamic within the Judeo-Christian tradition. Its story of God and humanity and belief starts with a beautiful simplicity. The creation poetry paints this picture of humanity being fruitful and multiplying all over the face of the earth, living uh, as stewards, keepers of this beautiful world. That's it. Live in ways that steward and, and maintain the goodness and the beauty and the peace of the created order. In the Adam and Eve narrative, they were simply to enjoy the beauty of Eden and live in peace together. But as the story goes, that simplicity and beauty of life as God intended was disrupted as fear and separation were become part of the human story. Um, the, the first humanity fears God's retribution for their imperfection, and they hide. This fear becomes passed down to the next generation, becoming part of the story of Cain and Abel, the, the story of the first human children. And, and fear over whether or not God was benevolent and would still seek to maintain lives of beauty and peace for them, led them to a new expression of belief in practice. And that was the offering of first fruits to God. Cain offered X, Abel offered Y. They worried and expected God to be angry if they didn't do this. It, it came from a place of human fear and not divine mandate. 
And then even worse, that, that fear and worry that the offerings of God, offerings to God of one brother were more favored than the other, led one brother to kill the other. Uh, and, and here we have, the, we have the first story of violence and antagonism birthed out of human fear. Beliefs uh, based on fear and worry that God never required them to believe um, drove those first generations of humans farther away from the simple peace uh, that was intended and into antagonism and negative assumptions and tribalism. Uh, as, this, as the story unfolds uh, in this tradition, the no narrative tells us the story of the divine reset, that God gives Noah and his family the same message about life after this reset that was in the creation poetry in the Adam and Eve narrative. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with people. Live as stewards and caretakers. It is a simple and beautiful life, but, but for clarity, God adds this time, oh, and don't kill anyone, ever, because in my own divine image, I've made all of humankind. But this is the foundational image of human life, and it's simple. Live peacefully and joyfully within the established rhythms of the created order, belonging to one another in a worldwide God-created humanity. Um, our lives are to be lived free of judgment, of separation, of murder, and in ways that honor and maintain the natural order, rather than in ways that disrupt or harm it. But it's not that easy for us to stay in that simple place. Fear and worry come to our bodies and complicate and cloud everything. We make assumptions, we fight, we tribalize. And so because the Noah story tells of God's promise to never hit that reset button again, um, the, the, the narratives tell us that God instigated the, uh, a new way of intervening in the world to restore that simplicity and, and beauty of, of humanity. God instigated the creation of the people of Abraham, and the generations of this family were to act in partnership with God in the world in order to, to, to help restore and maintain the blessed simplicity of this peaceful life together. God promised to Abraham that God would bless, guide, and help the generations of his family as they sought to be God's means of blessing, guiding, and helping all the other nations of the world. In you, promised God to Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And, and this was it. The covenant between God and the people of Abraham, where God promised to work in ways that nurtured their well-being, and they promised to work in ways that nurtured the well-being of all peoples, no matter who they were, all nations. There were no conditions or prerequisites. There were no ifs, ands, or buts. There were no additional, additional beliefs that needed to be held, no more additional actions that needed to be integrated into their daily living in order to, to keep life in this place of beauty and well-being. But we know what happened. Seasons of drought came. Seasons of illness came. These seasons caused the people to fear and to doubt that God was still committed to ensuring their well-being. Their tendency to assume negatively about God, to hold these negative expectations of God flared up. False assumptions that God caused these uh, hard times on purpose as punishment out of anger and needed to be appeased through additional beliefs and actions. 
they came to expect that God punished imperfection and rewarded particular obedience. The story of Moses and the Ten Commandments tells of God offering the people some really simple and basic guidelines for their living as a people blessed in order to be a blessing to all the nations. Uh, things like serve this purpose of God of peace and not your own purposes. Don't idolize people, power, or money in ways that distract you as a people from this good and, and beautiful life. Don't steal from others, slander them, kill them, covet their things, because it's really hard to positively impact their lives and to nurture peace with them if you do. These seem obvious to us, as, as though they resonate with our common sense as human creatures and resonate with the simple beauty of lives of stewardship and peace that have been God's design for humanity from the beginning. But the fear and the worry was still an inextricable part of their humanity. It, it evolved within these ancestors just as it is within us all still. So after they worried and feared the first time, it snowballed. It got easier and easier to worry. It got easier to worry about any imperfection in their circumstances uh, being perceived as God's punishment of them. Uh, and the, this simple divine charge to be fruitful, multiplying peace, which became live as a means of blessing all the peoples of the earth, which became live with these 10 commands as, as basic guidelines around this life of stewardship and blessing, then became instead live with fear and worry if you don't perfectly abide by these commands, and then make sacrifices to God in order to make God happy again so that God will stop punishing. They came to expect, their expectations changed. They came to expect God's vengeance and retribution, which in reality God never promised. So this is how the whole temple-based Levitical sacrificial system was born. Uh, and as fear and worry continued generation after generation just to be safe, the descendants of Abraham ended up with more than 600 different laws that had to be kept and for which they had to atone with sacrifices if broken. It got very complicated. It also got very distracting and misleading. Fear and worry got their first attention. Living for the sake of the other became of secondary importance, only attended to when damage control of alleviating their own fears was complete, which was never. And so the, the people's lives were slowly but steadily reoriented around assuaging their own fears uh, through lives of dogmatic obedience and atonement. They stopped prioritizing the life that God intended for them of global stewardship, enjoying God's blessing, living to bless others. At the same time, it also got easier to worry about these other people to whom they were supposed to be sent, with whom they were supposed to be entering into friendships and, and relationships and nurturing well-being and peace. We all know what it's like to encounter someone who is an other to us and how these tendencies within us can flare. If we don't argue with our bodies in that moment, it gets easier and easier to assume that someone who is an other to us is an enemy, a threat, a danger to our well-being, a tribe, part of a tribe that's to be resisted. And so, so the people of Abraham came to expect that the other people in the world around them were a threat. 
to be resisted rather than nations to love and serve and bless. When that happened, they were believing the exact opposite of what God intended them to believe. Uh, and then those beliefs called them, caused them to act in antagonistic ways that were the exact opposite of how God hoped and intended they would act. So into this overcomplication and dangerously dogmatized systems of beliefs, the prophets of the Hebrew people were, were raised up to stand up, to speak up, to cry out for the people to return to this simple and beautiful core of their beliefs. Return to the truth of, of God's eternal benevolence, the, the truth of their identity as those who steward peace and well-being among all the nations of the world. This is Isaiah saying, is this the kind of day that you all think that God demands? Fasting, navel-gazing, lying around in sackcloths and ashes as, as some sort of dogmatic uh, expression or practice. No, this is the, the kind of day that God asks of you is to work against injustice, to give bread to the poor and shelter to the homeless, and to stop pointing the finger and speaking evil of others out from your negative and tribal assumptions and expectations. Do this instead. And remember that God will guide you continually without you having to earn it. This is Jeremiah saying to the people when they were exiled to Babylon, stop spending all your time trying to figure out why, the, why these imperfect circumstances are God punishing you, because that's not true. And stop trying to earn your way back into God's good graces by your self-focused religious beliefs and practices so that God will magically be happy again and send you home. That's not how it works. That's not what this is all about. God has promised to always be for you and never against you. And you as a people have promised to be for the sake of others. And so instead... Spend your time planting gardens and building homes among the Babylonians. Get to know them. Build relationships of peace. Celebrate when your children get married to theirs. Seek the well-being of the Babylonians because that's how you will discover your own well-being. And remember, God has promised to bless and keep you. And that doesn't mean magically wiping out all those who are different than you. It means guiding you and they together into well-being. This is the prophet Micah saying, what has God done to, to, to make you act this way? In what ways has God wearied you, he says? Answer, why do you think like this when God brought you out of slavery from Egypt, saved you from this king and that king, and you know all these saving acts and interventions of God? Why do you think you have to come before God? bowing with offerings of animals and oils. God is for you. God has shown you what is good and what God expects, and this is not it. God asks that you would do justice and love kindness and walk humbly in relationship and partnership with God. You are blessed, and you are a blessing to others. It is time to simplify. And this is Jesus stepping up. Stepping into the same prophetic tradition, calling for a return to that simple and beautiful truth by the people who are distracted and lost in an overcomplicated and dogmatic 
Pharisaical religion. This is Jesus talking to his contemporaries about the Pharisees and saying, do what, do what they teach, but not as they do, because they do not practice what they teach. They teach this beautiful and simple understanding of God and, and the covenant with our ancestors as the people of Abraham, and, the, and they teach this call to live lives with a focus on stewardship and being a means of blessing to other peoples, but they don't actually live that way. They lay heavy burdens of dogma on the shoulders of others, and in doing so, they keep them away from the kingdom of heaven. They keep them away from lives that are good and godly. This is Jesus doing things like healing someone on the Sabbath day, whereas the pharisaical dogmatism of his day forbade this kind of work on the Sabbath, a real unnecessary, and in this case, harmful complication, Jesus had a simpler understanding, which is that the Sabbath was a gift of humanity from a loving God for the sake of their rest and well-being, and so that anything that promoted the good and well-being of the people was godly, allowable, and to be celebrated, no matter what day it was. When Jesus was asked by somebody else, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? This was his response. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is equal. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. In other words, he's teaching, trying to teach them, and all of your scriptures, all of your religious beliefs and practices that come from it are supposed to point to this one simple understanding. Living in the love of God and with love for neighbor. That's it. It isn't supposed to point to some complex system of obedience, punishment, atonement, self-righteousness, guilt, guilty, fearful antagonism toward neighbor. That all comes from human intervention, fear, and striving for authority through dogmatism. Because of these pressures and fears from the dogma of their time, the people around Jesus struggled, just like we do, with the question of what must we believe? What makes our belief true? Back then, it was, what makes us real children of Abraham? What, what makes us faithful to our end of this covenant with God? What, what keeps us um, in, in, in the place of God's intentions for us? Do I, do I have to believe and abide by all 613 of these commands and obligations that the Pharisees are heaping on us? Do we really have to believe that wives and children are property, that marrying a foreigner is wrong, that, that God demands our fatted calf be burned? Uh, and, and that we are obligated to help people on these days of the week, but then we ought to be executed if we help them on this other day instead? What is God really asking? Where, where does the human dogma end and the, and the true core of simplistic eternal belief and truth exist? Today, I and those with me in, in, the, in the Christian church ask, what makes a real Christian? Are, are the Catholics the real Christians? Are the Orthodox? Are, are us Protestants? Are the non-denoms? Uh, is it those who believe that all of the commands in the Bible are, are of equal importance and obligation before God? Do we really have to believe that women ought to be subjugated to men or that interracial or same-gender relationships are wrong or that wealth is God's reward and that poverty is God's punishment? Are real Christians those who consent to the confessions and what we believe Lists of their congregations are only Republicans real Christians or Democrats? Do I have to take the right belief stance on abortion or sexuality or guns in order to be a real Christian? Or are real Christians those who believe and live simply in the love of God 
and the godly intention of love for neighbor? Where does the human dogma end and where does the true core exist? In response to this question, Jesus said this, I give you a new commandment. You've known these hundreds of commands that were fearfully heaped upon you by the Pharisees, but I give you a new commandment. If this is what you believe, then you have real, true, focused, simple belief. And the commandment is this, that you love one another. That's it. That's it. Just as I've loved you, just as I've demonstrated a life of love for others for you to emulate, you should also love one another. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. And when we read this and we hear this, us Christians lean in and we listen carefully because Jesus is about to tell us what makes us a real Christian. By this, everyone will know that you are Christians. That you love one another. That's it. No heavy dogmatic burdens. No long lists of obligations. No belief statements to which we must consent. No angry God to appease. No compensatory atonements and offerings to God. No self-righteous judgment or antagonism. Just love. The Apostle John, one of the earliest advocates for the way of Christianity as a social order in the world, wrote in one of his letters, Let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. A real child of God, a real believer, the person who really knows the truth about God and humanity and what God wants and intends is the one who loves others. That's it. Another early Christian leader named James wrote this, that true religion is this. He says, if any think they're religious, and don't bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself untainted by the forces of the world. Maybe we all know someone. Maybe we know that in some ways this is our own self, who claims to be a real believer of the real truth, but can't seem to keep their tongue under control, and do and say things that are the opposite of Jesus' command to love others. James says that Real and true belief looks like this. Love for the most vulnerable among us. Love for those in distress. Religion, belief that is pure and undefiled, not hijacked or distracted, tainted by the force of dogmatism and the other forces of the world, is this. It looks like when you love others. In so many ways, uh, dogmatism has led the church astray. And in a nation where we've got this complex dynamic of constitutionally being a nation of the separation of church and state, yet at the same time, there's so many that clamor for how we were founded on Christian principles and need to keep it that way. Religious dogmatism has also led our nation astray. Dogmatism is why the church and the nation seem to heave long lists of expectations 
and required beliefs on people, but don't seek a, a more simple mode of believing and living together that's based on this simple and beautiful core at the heart of life. The benevolence and love of God, the stewardship of life and the earth so that everyone can flourish and live in peace, and, and the love for others, which inspires and drives this stewardship. In a nation and a world ravaged by antagonism and injustice and the isms that they cause, or that cause it, we need to simplify our beliefs. We need to start to dismantle these layers of dogmatism. It is creating fear and worry that poison our beliefs and our actions and nurturing expectations of God and other people that keep us in this reactive and animalistic place of self-focus, of tribalism, of antagonism. It is a constant and burdensome distraction away from who we are supposed to be as people together. It has made us a people of moral and culture wars, of judgment, judgmentalism and egos inflated and spoiled by dogmatic self-righteousness rather than a people who live with a sense of freedom and without fear in the love of God and who live with love and an intentionality as stewards of peace and well-being for all peoples and nations. I, I don't know if you need to hear this or who needs to hear this or what churches or denominations need to hear this, but you can absolutely set down without any fear of God the weight of dogmatism that is upon you and the responsibility to live in ways that are judgmental and harmful to others that this dogmatism has grown within you. You can set it down right now. It is, it is not who God's created you to be. You were created to steward well-being and peace. You were created to be a means of blessing others. You were created to love others with such intentionality that it helps to reshape the world into a place of justice and well-being and peace. You are not a real Christian because of who you judge or exclude or hate or condemn. This is how the world will know that you are a real, honest-to-God Christian, says Jesus, not Tim, that you love others with the love that I had for you and that I demonstrated for you. That's it. You don't have to worry about God being angry if you let go of some of this dogmatism. You don't have to worry about hell. You don't have to worry about your pastor or your church labeling you as a heretic and kicking you out of your tribe if you are bold enough to commit to love as Jesus commanded. That is an act of their waywardness if they do and says nothing about the integrity of your beliefs. If the greatest commands of the Hebrew tradition and the command of Jesus, whom the church claims to serve, is to love one another then the only true heresy is, is the failure or refusal to love another. Expect that the will and hope of God is for all of the destructive and distracting systems of dogma are to be dismantled rather than de defended and fortified. Make that a new expectation. Expect God to love and nurture your well-being no matter what. Let go of any expectation you have of, of God punishing you for imperfection. Expect that Jesus is the authority on your religious and spiritual life rather than anyone else. Expect that all the other people in this world are neighbors to be loved and not enemies to fear. 
expect that returning to the simple and beautiful core of our belief is the way to a more fulfilling, powerful, and peacemaking existence. Expect loving one another to always be the answer. Whether the question is, what should I do in this situation? Or how do I live a simpler life with less of this weighty worry and fear? Expect the answer to be the same. Love one another. Expect that greater simplicity of belief will be a benefit to you and to the world around you. And because that is true, we know that we are talking about something that is real and is good. Stay home if you can, stay safe however you're able, wear a mask. Please, please, please get a vaccine if you're eligible. Stay cool out there today and be well. Peace to all.